did it. If you have a Bible with you today, please open it to Exodus chapter 22. We'll begin reading in verse 16 here in just a couple of moments. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find in that Bible, Exodus chapter 22 on page 59. Deism uh, was a theory concerning God, the theology of God that kind of flourished in America and in Western Europe somewhere in between the late 18th and the middle of the 19th century. Deists are folks who believe in an almighty and all-powerful God, but they think that that God is primarily hands-off. They saw him as a God who, who wound up the world almost like a clock. A perhaps better picture of this today would be a God who has laid out dominoes. So have you seen those videos of people who lay out hundreds of thousands of dominoes and then tip them over? God has done that, but with billions and billions of trillions of dominoes. And he kicks over one, and then all of creation sort of plays out in front of him. He is, he is sovereign over all of it. He is in control of all of it, but he is also sort of hands-off. Now that the dominoes have started falling, he doesn't interact. He doesn't interject himself into that creation. This, of course, became fashionable way, and there's a lot of sort of functional deists among us, especially when it comes to things like evolution, which was introduced in the middle of the 19th century. That said, basically, creation has started, but there's accidents and these, these things that have happened, mutations that have happened that have brought life, and if you want to hold to that and hold to God as creator, well, deism is your bag. This is very, very difficult, though, for anyone who truly understands the Bible to believe in. Because the God of the Bible doesn't let creation start and then sort of stand back from it, but God seems to not be able to keep his hands out of the dirt of this world. He seems to, to have and to long to interact with the people of this world. It's written all over Scripture. There's never a place to go where you can't see God's action with his people. It's not just in the incarnation where Jesus came to literally be with us as a human man, but long before that, in the book of Exodus, God is just evermore interjecting himself into the affairs of men. But if you were to read the text that we read last week and the sort of case law that God gave, you might be drawn to consider the fact that when it comes to Israel, now that God has redeemed them, he is going to be much more hands-off when it comes to their approaching justice. After all, we, we can see that God has called the people of Israel to certain things. He's given them the commandments. These are the things that you are to do, and if you do these things, all will go well with you. But God knows, and we know, that things are not always going to go according to that plan, that there will be times in which sin will present itself or just the fallenness of the world will, will come about, and there needs to be a movement back toward justice. And when we read those things, it seems as though God wasn't terribly present in there. We were told to do a lot of things. The Israelites were told to do a lot of things, but God didn't make himself known. It seems like God is not interjecting him into those events. That might have been an impression we got from our text last week, but as we work into the end of chapter 22 and through 23 and 24, it is very easy to see that we can hardly sustain it this week. God will not allow justice to simply be the work of human beings. But God stands behind justice to make sure that it is done. What role does God play in helping us love our neighbor and to reestablish that love of neighbor and establish justice in the world? 
I think Exodus 22, 16 through chapter 24 helps us understand that this morning. Programming note, we will be reading that text this morning. It takes slightly under nine minutes to do that. Um, I know that because I did indeed time myself reading it so that I would know how long we can go. We are going to be reaching passages in Exodus and chunks of Exodus that we'll be taking where we are not going to be able to read all of it prudently. Um, So we will be taking segments in there, but we will be reading it this morning. So if you would, please read with me from Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the moneylender to them, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a man, excuse me, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow the land and gather in its, in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. 
Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the fruit, the field, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Be care- pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and to the Perizzites and to the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and all the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, And they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near him, shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of our Lord. Let us see why we can pursue justice this morning as briefly as possible. First, the Lord attends and avenges. We can pursue justice in the world because the Lord attends and avenges. We've talked in the past about how the time that Israel spent in Egypt is indeed a picture of what God does for us in our redemption, bringing us out of our own captivity to sin. But we also talked about how it becomes a paradigm for all kinds of salvation. When David finds himself in trouble in Psalm 18, we, we saw that he doesn't just talk about this as though it's a corporate exodus that God will one day redeem his people from all of their enemies, but that he specifically redeemed David from his enemies using the same type of language that he used in Exodus. In other words, David's saying it's my own sort of personal exodus. The experience of Israel in Egypt is paradigmatic for us when we get into trouble and how God will deliver us. But we need to remember that 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 imagery always cuts both ways. We should understand that this picture is not just a picture of our redemption, although it truly is. It is also a warning about our failure. As humans, I think we are prone, I, I am very prone, maybe you are less prone, to always read ourselves on God's side. We are to read ourselves almost always in the best of lights, to think, well, we are the people of God, and so we identify with Israel. But we need to be warned lest we actually start to identify with Egypt. Here in chapter 22 and verse 21, God tells his people that they are not to mistreat sojourners. He says, because you were sojourners. There's a great emphasis here on sort of loving your neighbor. We're reminded of of Matthew 7, 12, Jesus using sort of a different summation, the golden rule to talk about the fulfillment of these commands where he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, the Lord is telling them, "You, you don't get to be hypocritical. Remember when you were a sojourner? Remember when you were oppressed in Egypt? You have to remember how that feels. Did you, did you like it? Was it comfortable for you? Was it good for you? No. So you can't possibly, as my people, turn around and treat a sojourner in your midst that way. That is a good enough reason for how they are supposed to treat the, the sojourner in their midst, but God gives another reason at the end of that. 
he will hear their cry. He will hear the cry of the sojourner. That language is important because it's the exact same language that God used at the very beginning of the book of Exodus in a passage that, ironically, is almost numerically identical to the one we've got. That idea that God will hear the cry of them comes in verses 23 and 24 of the 22nd chapter, 22, 23, and 24. In chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we hear this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. They might be able to stifle the hearing of the judges of the earth, but the judge of all the earth will always hear the cry. He says, I will hear the cry of the sojourner. He's not like the gods of Egypt who are deaf and unable to hear. He is not like the deist God who might be able to hear but refuses to interject himself. He says, I am neither of those things and you know it. If I hear the sojourner cry out, if I hear the the fatherless or the widow cry out, I will indeed hear them. I will attend to them and I will avenge them. As we were moving through the earlier part of Exodus, we were reminded there's a really simple hermeneutical principle in all of that. What you see the Egyptians do, don't do it. The Egyptians are painted as the bad people. Pharaoh is a picture of devil himself. And so their actions should not be repeated by the people of God. And Moses is redoubling that. He says, if you want to be the people of God, then act like the people of God. Do not act like the Egyptians. And what God is saying is all the more, if you want to act like Egyptians, you may act like Egyptians, but I will treat you like Egyptians. God attends to the cries of his people. He doesn't just hear them, but he actually avenges them. He says he will bring the sword upon those who do such things. If you mistreat widow or the fatherless child, God will make your wife a widow. He will make your children fatherless. In the same way later on, in verse 27, if this one who has had his cloak taken from him, if he cries out to God, he will hear. He says, for I am compassionate. There's an implication that he will hear, and just as he would earlier, he will avenge. I think that that kind of goes throughout the rest of this, that God will hear the cries of the poor and the downtrodden and he will avenge them. The fact that God hears and executes justice changes then how we are to do justice. If we do not do justice, we face justice from him. Our judges always have a greater judge and we ourselves have a judge above us who judges our actions even as we seek to imply justice in this world. That even occurs when we get these difficult cases. There are plenty of times that we know who the guilty party is. It's clear and it's obvious. We've got enough witnesses. We've got enough evidence. We know who's guilty. And God says, when that happens, you have to mark them as guilty. We also know when a false charge has been brought. There are certain times when it's clear That somebody who is charged with doing something has not done it. They are innocent. God says you are not to charge them as guilty. But there are difficult cases as well. There are cases where there's not enough evidence, where we don't know for certain if somebody is guilty or somebody is innocent. In this passage in chapter 23, verse 6 and down, to not pervert justice 
is to keep from a false charge. That is, you are to side and to assume, as we say in America, innocent until proven guilty. And if you don't have enough, the way you are supposed to side, the way you are supposed to judge is always to presume they're innocent. And, and God gives the reasoning for that. He says, because I will not acquit the wicked. If he's guilty and you can't determine it, don't worry. He's not going to get away with it. I will provide justice. There are plenty here in this world who ascribe to sort of Shrewdian philosophy that is, it's better for a thousand innocent men to go to jail than for one guilty man to roam free. But God says that cannot possibly be the case with you. Because if a guilty man goes free, he will not be free forever. I will indeed avenge the wrongdoing. We can pursue justice. Even though we know that we are fickle, even though we know we will fall short, even though we know that we, we are not even going to have, even if we know the right avenue to take, we might not even be able to have enough information to know which avenue to move down. But we can pursue justice because we know that God stands behind our pursuit. God helps and aids our pursuit. Even when we think that justice is far off, we should still pursue because God, the Almighty One, stands behind it. And again, we should note something about the nature of justice in this world. Generally, the cries for justice come from those who are oppressed and weak in the power of the world. And so God's law rightly and helpfully analyzes it from that view. The emphasis here is on giving the weak and the powerless their due. But that should never come at the expense of what is actually right and true. So while you are to give justice to the poor and to the weak. You're not to side with them simply because they're poor. You are always to devote yourself to justice. 23.3 says, You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Justice might focus on the poor, but it can never be partial to them. God hears the cries of people, he attends to them, and he avenges them. So be and pursue justice. Secondly, the Lord provides and protects. As we move on through this passage in Exodus, the Lord starts to talk about the Sabbath in a number of different respects. He starts off by giving us this picture of land lying fallow. In the seventh year, you are not to farm the land. You're not to sow into that land, but you are to let it lie. You are to give it a rest. The implication very quickly becomes so that the poor would also be able to have from those fields. You are not to pick from them, but they are to be left there. Whatever happens to grow up grows up so that the poor can come by and get their fill. God, again, is providing for the poor. This is an aspect of justice, that the poor have enough to eat, that the poor among you have enough to make a living off of. So even the Sabbath is, is given in light of helping out those who are poor. This is true, whether it is a wheat field, a vineyard, if it is an olive orchard, you are to let it be. A clear implication, again, that the things that you own do mean that you own them, and it doesn't belong to other people. But that doesn't mean it doesn't belong to God first. 
So do what God tells you with the things that you have been given. The purpose, it seems, of the commands of the Sabbath is to force people to rely upon God. You are forced every seven days to rely upon the fact that God will provide for you. Every seventh day you are to take off. You are not to work. And again, the idea is not only are you not to work, but you are not to allow your servants to work. So that if you are wealthy, if you are the one who owns land, you can't say, well, I'm not going to go out in the field, but I can make sure that other people do. No, they are to be, as the word says, refreshed. They are to be relieved from their duties on this particular day as well. Every Sabbath command seems gunned at the fact that people are to rest, and that that resting means that we rely upon the Lord to provide for us what we need. If that is true for one day a week, that is true for one year out of seven. And if, if keeping ourselves from working on seven straight days, which we struggle to do, many of us, because there's always things to do. There's, a, there's always a way of, of wondering if God is going to provide for us. There are many people who work odd jobs. Right? There's, some, there's some among us who just happen to have to work on, on Sundays. Right? And Sunday is typically the day that we expect that people are going to take off. There are some people who have to work on Sundays. It's just the way their profession works. And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There are other people who, who tend to always think, well, if I don't get a shift in, if I, if I don't work here, I'm just not going to have enough money. I'm not going to have enough of this. I'm not going to have enough of that. And, and the idea that the Lord is telling you is, is slow down. I don't need you to work seven days a week in order to provide for you. I will provide for you. Stop. It is, as we've already mentioned, for your refreshing. It is for your joy. You must rely upon God to provide. This is true of the first fruits as well. In 22:29 and following, he talks about the, the first fruits that are given over. As you collect your harvest, it is very easy to think, well, this, this I have here present. The rest of my harvest still lies out on the field, and I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It can bring hail. It can bring locusts. It could bring heat that will dry it out before I can get to it. it. There's a number of different things as a farmer that must go through the back of your head of all of the evil things that could happen as you are pessimistic about all of the stuff that could occur between what you have in your hand and what you're hoping to gather. God says, I know you want to hang on to that. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I know you want to hang on to that. And you might even say, I won't just give you a tenth. I'll give you 12, 15%, Lord. But let me hold on to this. And when I gather everything and I'll, I'll make you a cut of all of it. And God says, no, you can't do that. I want the first of it. Not just because it's the best. I want the first of it so that you are forced to rely on me to provide the rest for you. Same is true of the firstborn of the livestock. What happens if that cow dies after she gives birth? You don't get to claim that calf is yours as a replacement. That calf still goes to the Lord you must rely upon the Lord to provide. You have to rely upon his faithfulness from week to week, from year to year, from lifetime to lifetime. God will provide all that you need. Simply wait upon him. It might not look the way you want it to look. It might not come to you the way you want it to come to you, but the Lord will provide. 
One of the largest sections of the Sermon on the Mount is given over to this idea at the end of chapter 6. Jesus is talking to a people who live day to day. They don't necessarily know where their food's going to come from. They don't have a large bank account to draw from. They don't see that dwindling down. They just get the food that they get for that day, many of them. And he looks at them and he says, you are not to be anxious and don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about how you're going to clothe yourself. You should read that, by the way, much, much less as a command and more as a comfort. The Lord is looking at you saying, you don't need to worry. The flowers of the field are dressed more spectacularly than any king in history, and God God provides that for them. The birds of the air don't sow and they don't reap, but the Lord provides for them. How much more will he provide for you? Jesus ends up by saying, seek first the kingdom of God. In God's faithfulness, in trusting God's faithfulness, seek first his kingdom. Trust that the Lord will provide for you what you need. Trust that the Lord will give to you all that you need. Do you want to be secure? Security is found not in taking whatever you can get and giving away all the excess. Security is found in giving to the Lord first and knowing that the Lord will provide for you all that you need. We are in the month of Lottie Moon. This is where we make our annual push for Lottie Moon. I will tell you there are very few ways that you can demonstrate that you are putting the kingdom of God first and the amount of money that you give to Lottie Moon. Above and beyond what you give to this church. That is one of the the histories of Lottie Moon. One of the reasons why we call it the Lottie Moon Christmas offering isn't simply because as she was a missionary to China, she was the one who began to do this kind of of giving. She asked for the ladies back in Baptist churches to take up a Christmas offering so that they might provide funds to people in foreign nations, but it's also because she lived that way. Like she was an incredibly giving person. She got money from the states so that she could have food, but in a time of famine, she just gave it all away. She literally died because she gave away all of her food. When she died, she weighed less than half of what my dog weighs. Now, my dog's fat, but that's a small human being. She weighed less than 50 pounds. You don't need to do that. That doesn't mean you can't be generous. I know that the economy is unstable and it makes it hard to know what you ought to give and how much you ought to set aside, but I'm telling you, seek first the kingdom of God and see if God will not add all of it back onto you. The people of Israel are called upon to do exactly the same thing, but it also helps us to know where they're being told these things. They're being told all these things about the first fruits and about all the calves and about all the goodness of the land in a place that cannot do any of that. They're in a desert. They see rocks around them. They do not see flowing springs, let alone milk and honey flowing down from every crevice. What they see is barrenness and death. Part of this is a reliance upon God, not just to provide food, but to provide land, which is why he turns around and talks to them about driving the people out of the land. They are not a war-prepared people. But God promises not only that he will provide for them, but he will also protect them from these evil enemies. He will drive them out. 
But again, this wonderful promise of God that is given to them warns them to wait. It warns them to be satisfied with with allowing him to provide for them. He says, I'm going to drive them out with a hornet, but I'm not going to do it right away. Because if I did it all in one year, then the beast would overrun your, your houses that you're going to move into, that they built for you, would be dilapidated. Their fences would fall down. All the animals would come and multiply, and you would have a huge mess on your hands. So, I will do it slowly. You'll have to wait. I will protect you, and I will provide for you. In all of this, there is a tremendous emphasis on their obedience. As you seek justice, you seek that which is good, you need to wait upon the Lord. You need to do the commands of the Lord. You need to obey what the Lord has said. And good things come when that is true. Typically, we think of people who give us commands, and oftentimes we probably read the commands of the Lord in light of the way other people give us commands. When you know that your boss is typically not commanding things of you for your good, Oftentimes, the people who are in authority over you are commanding things of you for their good. And you can easily read that into what the Lord is commanding you to do and simply say, well, he is my Lord, so I must do it. Duty is perfectly fine. It should all be for doing the things that the Lord has commanded, even when we don't feel like it. But there is a better way of viewing it. These things are for your good. Continually through this passage, God is holding it up as for your good. If you obey the angel that's going to lead you, these things are going to happen. It will be for your good. The commands of God are always for our good. The people are going to be prone at times to wondering where God has gone, wondering what God is up to. Why isn't God answering our prayers when we've asked them? Maybe we should look to these other gods. Maybe they will provide the things that we need. And God says, you can't do that. That is not for your good. Those promises that come from other so-called gods are faulty and tricksy. They are hollow and empty even when they seem like they are fulfilled. But listen to the word of the Lord. Trust in him, because the Lord will provide and the Lord will protect. Lastly, the Lord purifies and parties. The Lord purifies and parties. Exodus 24 takes us to a sort of exclusive scene of worship for Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, the elders of Israel. I think the elders of Israel and Nadab and Abihu are invited into this because they are the ones who are going to be reporting back. The people need to know what's in this for me. God never wants to withhold what's in it for you from you. He wants you to know what's in it for you. And so he invites the elders to come up. They're going to sit and they're going to feast in front of God. They're going to commune in front of God. And God will not lay his hand on them. He will not destroy them so that they can go back and tell the people, listen, listen to the Lord. Do what the Lord commands because it will go well with us. What happens before that, though, is for many a gruesome scene. Moses comes down. He reminds the people of the covenant. He has written down, these are the things that you are to pursue, he says. You are to pursue justice. You are to pursue love of your neighbor. You are to to do everything you can to uphold what the Lord says. And the people two times respond to him in verse 3 and verse 6. Everything that's been said, we will do. To ratify that covenant, there is the killing of oxen. Two basins are filled. One he pours out on the altar. The other he takes and he covers the people with it. 
It functions in two ways, I think, this blood on the people. It functions both to purify them and to hold them guilty. In a manner of speaking, they will have very clearly blood on their hands. What Moses is doing is reminding them, you said that you're going to uphold the covenant. This is what will happen if you don't uphold the covenant. There will be blood on you, and it will be your own. If they betray the covenant, the blood will be theirs. However, the better way to view it in this particular sense is not just that they are being held accountable, but they are being purified. The blood doesn't just symbolically cover the people. The blood literally covers them. It goes on them. It means that they are covered by the death of this animal. Sin requires death. Blood equals death. And they are covered with death, so their payment is fulfilled. You might say dead, now they can finally live. This is what the purpose of the blood was. It was to cover their sin, allowing them to enter purified into God's presence. We might think this barbaric, but man, it is the exact same thing that we sing of all the time. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You are to be covered in the blood of the Lamb. We are reminded that the blood of bulls and goats covers sin, but it does not take it away. It's going to leave these people, although covered with blood, still sinful in their hearts. But Jesus Christ can indeed take the fullness of sin away from us. But at the same time, we likewise need to remember what the book of Hebrews writes. Even though it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, and it points us to that better sacrifice later in that same chapter, it reminds us that if the Mosaic covenant called for the death of those who disobeyed it, how much worse is the punishment will be delivered deserved, excuse me, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. You, in hearing of the cross, in trusting in it, have blood on you, either to cover your sins or to demonstrate your guilt. So the covering, in its best example, is to provide access to God. These men see the fullness of the God of Israel. He, they see the Lord, and he does not crush them. They behold God, and notice, they ate and drank. It's to be a feast. Almost every time people come in before the Lord, they're to eat and drink. Three festivals we have in the passage here. Festivals. Not just, not just burdens placed upon the people. Festivals. You are to come and you are to celebrate. It is to be joyous. And we're, we're reminded that your God is a, a consuming fire, so there must be solemnity when you come before the Lord, but there is certainly meant to be joy. We've had this picture given to us in Exodus several times, and it is never lessened as you go throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's only heightened every time. You, you talk about what the Lord has done for people. Yes, the Lord is a fire, and he burns against sinful people, and he will consume sinful people. And so we must be careful about how we approach him. But we also read of the father of the prodigal son. So excited to have his son back that he throws a party. He feasts with him. Even the picture, one of the only things we get in heaven, we get two basic things in heaven. 
as far as a picture of what's going to happen there. We get worship and we get feasting. Worship and joy. And we're never told that those two things are at antitheses with one another. The Lord loves a good party. His people are to come in pure and whole, solemnly understanding the great nature of their God, and because of that, rejoicing and feasting before him forever. What God holds out for Israel in these verses, he has more than promised to us. A feast, a festival, a joyous celebration that all of the troubles of the world have faded into the background. That promise has been sealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a certainty, a promise fulfilled, but a promise that is not yet consummated. That day is indeed coming. But while we are here, we need to strive with all of our might and power to demonstrate the goodness of our God by pursuing justice, trusting in our God, even when justice seems far away, and even when justice for us, when good for us, when the things that God has promised to us seem far away, trust in God, for that day is coming. For those who have claimed the Lord's death as their own, for those who have trusted in him by faith, friends, just walk by that faith. You say that you believe in the word of God. Strive to do that. He is faithful to forgive you. He is faithful to hear your repentance. He wants and desires for you to simply strive in all that you can for not only your holiness before him, but for the good of everyone around you. And for those who might not know him in here, I have good news. Today is indeed the day of salvation. God was not content to allow you to be in your sin, sending his son to take your death for you, sending his son who is God on high. He dies the death that we owed so that we might live before him to indeed enjoy a festival before him. And no matter how ragged your life is, no matter how horrible you have lived, he will welcome you back. That is the news by which we live. That is the news by which everyone in here, prodigal as they may have been, and prodigal even as they may still be, we live for the fact that we know that our Lord rejoices in sinners who return to him. Let us pray. Father, help us to long for your kingdom above the things of this world and to live in light of your good and great promises. May your name be glorified by your people. And let those of your people who have not yet heard the gospel, have not yet believed, be visited by your spirit and indeed by the word of the gospel. Bring in that grand harvest of souls to enjoy the blessing that are evermore in your hands. Do this for the good of your people and the glory of your name. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.